Welcome to the Dr. Dez Says It's All Your Immunity podcast. In this age of the worldwide pandemic caused by COVID-19, you may be asking yourself, when is a vaccine going to actually come? There are groups of people saying that we can get a vaccine at warp speed, with the U.S. president pushing his program named Warp Speed for a quick vaccine development. Then there are other groups that take a more cautious stance when informing the public about the progress of vaccines. In fact, to date, the vaccine that took the shortest amount of time from development to market, four years to be exact, was the measles vaccine. So why do vaccines take so long to make? To begin answering that question, we will have to look at the public policy, the politics, the big business, and the science and medicine behind the drug development process and the drug approval process. I will tell you a story that will take us back to the late 1950s and early 1960s, where the drug development process and the drug approval process collide. The results of that collision have led to the practices that we have today. And even before COVID, these policies and practices, for better or worse, were undergoing a re-examination. Full disclosure, this story is taken from my The Doctor is In blog, posted September 2018, and can be found on the Nexus Immune Research Facebook page. While the story is not directly tied to COVID, the same issues of regulatory guidance and procedure, corporate interest, public policy, and the examination as to whether or not the institutions that we have built as safeguards continue to stand the test when crises arise. Let us begin. The drug was known as Contergen in Germany, Distaval in the United Kingdom and Australia, and Saltinon in the rest of Europe. It was a wonder drug of the 1950s that German scientists created in their quest to develop new antibiotics after World War II. The drug was a great remedy for nausea as well as ailments of the gastrointestinal system, or the GI tract. And soon, it was released to European markets. Like many disorders associated with women's health, there were not many alternative drugs and medical treatments for morning sickness as effective and as readily available as this drug. By 1957, this medication was deemed so safe and effective by its manufacturers, it was sold over-the-counter in Germany and as sample packs in physicians' offices across Europe. If one does not understand the severity of extreme morning sickness, and its debilitating effects, remember that the Duchess of Cambridge, Kate Middleton, had to withdraw from official royal duties due to hyperemesis gravidarum, 
a form of severe morning sickness. She contended with this disorder in all three of her pregnancies and was briefly hospitalized for the condition during her first pregnancy. Then, as is the case today, severe morning sickness remains debilitating for many women. Thalidomide, as it came to be known in the United States, was simply a godsend. was Dr. Frances Oldham Kelsey. In 1960, she was a physician and medical officer at the Food and Drug Administration, or FDA, whose assignment was to review the thalidomide application for sale and license approval in the United States. Thalidomide was a big deal and the U.S. was the next big market for its manufacturers. The drugs makers lobbied hard for its approval. Yet despite intense political lobbying and in the face of the public need, Dr. Kelsey refused to grant application approval. She was of the opinion that there was not enough data on the drug's safety. What limited data there was disturbed her. Early information indicated that patients who had taken thalidomide during pregnancy were developing peripheral neuropathy or nerve damage. She also began to question the safety of babies being exposed to thalidomide during their mother's pregnancies. In their lobbying campaign, the manufacturers of the drug denied any link between these findings and thalidomide. In 1961, two researchers, Dr. Windukind Lentz, a German pediatrician, and Dr. William McBride, an Australian obstetrician, separately presented landmark evidence that did link women who had taken thalidomide during their pregnancies and 10,000 cases of children born with severe birth defects. These cases of miscarriages to those taking the drug while pregnant increased during the period between 1957 and 1962. If children survived past infancy, they were left with non-existent or stunted limbs and severe physical disabilities that affected multiple parts of the body. The financial, and most importantly, the emotional cost to the peoples of Europe, Australia, Asia, and South America remain uncalculable to this day. In addition to severe handicaps, the survivors of the thalidomide tragedy are experiencing early-onset age-related issues such as osteoarthritis, joint mobility issues, and coronary 
heart disease. Thalidomide was never approved in the United States. Because of Dr. Kelsey's steadfastness, people in the U.S. were spared the devastating health effects and financial consequences that continue to reverberate today as a result of this drug being marketed in many countries around the world. Eventually, Thalidomide was withdrawn from the UK in late 1961 and by 1962 from the rest of the world. For her efforts, Dr. Kelsey received the President's Award for Distinguished Federal Civilian Service in 1962 from President John F. Kennedy. However, the story does not end there. If history does not repeat itself, at least it does rhyme. In May of 2018, President Donald J. Trump signed into law the right to try, which gives terminally ill patients the right to access experimental drugs that are unapproved by the FDA. This law allows for those with critical conditions and little life expectancy to avert a waiting period for approval. Supporters insist that these waiting periods prevent life-saving drugs from getting to the patients who desperately need them. On the surface, this seems reasonable and, of course, compassionate for those who need access to drugs that may alleviate the symptoms of disease and prolong life. However, it is important to keep in mind that the FDA already allows terminally ill patients to get these medications after all other treatment options have been explored. The agency contends that it approves more than 99% of the requests for expanded access to experimental medicines. In the government's fiscal year 2017, the FDA approved exactly 1,831 applications for expanded access to experimental medicines out of 1,842 filed. So just what is this law doing, the right to try law? Before right to try, the expanded access was approved exclusively through the FDA. The agency could deny requests for drugs it had not yet approved for use in the general population. Right to try, as written, erodes this safeguard. Drugs can now be used after just phase one of clinical trials. Now, phase one clinical trials meet a very basic standard of safety or a lower threshold 
relative to the criteria for clinical phase 2 and phase 3 trials. Phase 1 sets standards for dosing in humans with study participants numbering 20 to 100 healthy volunteers or people with the disease. Clinical phase 2 enlists several hundred people with the disease, while phase 3 trials recruit 100 to 3,000 volunteers who have the disease. The questions posed in phase 1 are at what threshold does a dose cause harm or death and how is the drug absorbed, metabolized, and excreted. However, this phase of testing does not require nor does it answer if the drug is effective at doing what it would be prescribed to do. And most importantly, Phase 1 does not guarantee testing on subjects that suffer from the disease in question. Therefore, an experimental drug's basic safety to a disease-compromised human is not consistently assessed. Circumventing the FDA review chips away at the careful, evidence-based review that was started by Dr. Kelsey's pioneering efforts after the thalidomide disaster. Are we opening a door to unintended consequences by giving companies and doctors a way to skirt FDA review and approval? Can we risk drug companies exploiting loopholes to the FDA approval and trust them to provide data on public demand? Should we trust any pharmaceutical company with a financial interest in a drug to self-police the drug's development and manufacturing? Do the answers to these questions lie in the not-so-distant past? As someone who has worked over a decade in biopharmaceutical companies, I am not claiming that drug and biopharmaceutical companies are public enemies. Certainly not. All perform a public good with the products they discover and develop. And collectively, they remain at the forefront of technical innovation. However, by law, their first responsibility is not to the patient or to the public, but to the profits, investors, and shareholders of their companies. While no company wants to intentionally release a product that is unsafe, the drive to deliver a marketable product can lead to shortcuts and short-sightedness that have dangerous consequences. These can easily be found and corrected with oversight by an unbiased party, such as the FDA. This is the importance of Dr. Kelsey and the thalidomide story. There is a wisdom in waiting for the facts uncovered in clinical trial investigations. It saves lives. Dr. Kelsey could have easily relented because there was a serious need 
for color the mind. Or she could have conceded because of the lobbying efforts that could have cost her a career. She faced these circumstances and chose safety and caution over political pressure and big money. The public dialogue on right to try going forward needs to be right to try what? This is a law that now allows an end around to the oversight on the most untested biologics and chemicals as far as proving their effectiveness and safety. Instead, these issues will be determined by the drug manufacturers and doctors. And while that may seem like health care that is getting closer to the patient, the question is whether the patient is truly aware of the safety concerns that these experimental drugs pose. Private business is under no obligation to divulge any safety and efficacy information that they acquire since this information is proprietary. Nowhere in the broadly written right to try law does it suggest companies are obligated to do so. There is also an ethical question of whether it is right to administer experimental drugs to the most vulnerable population of people, the terminally ill, who desperately hold out hope for a cure. Maybe against better judgment and better options, they opt to try the drugs whose dangers are most unknown. In essence, they become the de facto guinea pigs for manufacturers or the cheaper way of testing. What if a patient dies not as a result of the disease, but because of the drug? Who is advocating on behalf of the patient? Are doctors allowed to be in partnership or in some financial arrangement with the drug manufacturers? Who in that case advocates for the patient? What are the parameters for addressing who even meets the criteria for terminally ill? As it is written, right to try answers none of these questions. In the end, it is the public and the patient who is left with the financial and emotional risk of this law. After all, the victims of the thalidomide debacle were never fully compensated for their pain and suffering. And for what? Even a portion of the approved drugs under this law have not been proven to be effective. Today, we have the same set of circumstances that Dr. Kelsey faced a half century ago. There is a perceived need and intense lobbying on behalf of drug companies. But again, who is speaking for the public's safety? It really must be the patients and the public more than ever who need to stay informed about the issues of medicine and health policy that directly affect their lives. And now, more than ever, there needs to be better reporting by mainstream news outlets to fully inform the public about the changes in the law and health policy. These changes are used as precedent for overturning what is seen by manufacturers as cumbersome regulation by the FDA. 
However, this oversight has been the linchpin, keeping the public safe from ineffective, unsafe drugs and a Wild West marketplace mentality. We have to decide if the safeguards handed down are good enough to protect the public in the most vulnerable states of illness, or are we comfortable with its slippery slope of unregulated, quote, off-label, end quote, drugs, the unregulated off-label drugs that allow companies to save billions in clinical trial phase testing while making vulnerable people and unregulated test subjects to experimental drugs. The drugs that in the end may pose more of a danger than the disease itself. Everything has a cost. There is a cost to knowing drugs are safe and effective. There is a cost to not knowing. Are we willing to pay this price with our lives? This is Dr. Desiree Barrett or Dr. Des to those that follow me on the YouTube channel. It's All Your Immunity with Dr. Des and at Twitter at Dr. Des Says One. And as always, I wish you health and some food for thought. And remember, Dr. Des Says, it's all your immunity.